How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On Thunder, your daily podcast on the Oklahoma City Thunder, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello everyone, we're locked in for episode 167 of Locked on Thunder, presented by the Norman Transcript. I'm your host, Fred Katz. Locked on Thunder is part of the Locked on Podcast Network. You can head out to iTunes, you can search Locked on Thunder and subscribe to the podcast there. Leave a review once you're on that page and find us on audioboom.com. Log on to normantranscript.com, check out my blog, Thunder Road. It's under the sports tab on the site. You can find all my Thunder coverage there. I'm on every day of the week, Monday through Friday, uh, recording this one. Late Monday night, actually, technically, early Tuesday morning, uh, with Danny LaRue of Lockdown Warriors after the Warriors just beat up on the Thunder 111 to 95. Danny, that was a terrible game. It was. Uh, you and I, I, well, I guess I can only speak for myself. I really enjoy talking with you, but I feel like we need better material to talk about than what we usually do on these little crossover episodes. Because other than the wonderful human drama that was the last time, there isn't as much now with these games, and I don't think that's because the Thunder are are a disaster or the Warriors are the super team or anything like that. It's just the the chemistry between them, the two of them. I think back to a phrase one of my friends uses of styles makes fights. You know, like that that that's kind of what this is, is that there's just this kind of structural issue that is just permeating this series now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's certainly part of it. The Thunder were played a terrible defensive game on the perimeter tonight. Robertson was great. He was he great was. in the first half, uh, especially the first quarter. He was incredible, I thought, in the first quarter. But he had to do everything. Like, I was sitting there watching and, and thinking, like, can, can Andre Robertson guard Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson at the same time? Can they clone him in the middle of this game? Can they just bring back Tabo Cephalosha? Does that count as cloning him? Uh, so it's like this, man, like, Russell's defense was terrible in this one. It was especially bad uh, off the ball, getting lost, not closing out on guys. It was responsible for a lot of those Open threes from Curry, open threes from Thompson. They weren't picking up guys in transition. Uh, and they weren't making threes on the other end. You know, Abrinas was an uncharacteristic go for seven. And guys were missing some decent looks from three-point range. Uh, it just, they were getting blocked a lot around the rim. Uh, they were giving up the middle of the floor, uh, which comes back to a lot of Westbrook's defense, I think. I mean, it was just, it just was bad basketball. For, I mean, they were down 27 at one point. It was, it was just bad basketball from them, I thought. It reminded me of just kind of the idea of a low watermark of, you know, just a, a game where almost everything goes wrong. I mean, Robertson had some nice defensive moments. I thought that Ennis Canner, I think particularly early, had a few a few good moments that actually waned a little bit in the second quarter, which was very surprising. I want to talk about that in, in a little bit. But the just not many things went right for the Thunder. And it was also exacerbated because one of the stories that had been happening with the Warriors, particularly after the All-Star break, was that Curry was in a swoon, a slump, whatever word people want to use for it. And what was so surprising about that was usually when a guy gets into a situation like that, it's because they're getting worse shots or something like that. Curry was missing open looks. And then what happened in this game was he just made almost all of them. Yeah. 
he was hitting everything. Uh, he had he had one ridiculous. He got a when he got that switch onto Canner at the top of the tee at the top of the key. Had that incredible just like pull up in his face, which I know I know you see him do that pretty much every single game, but it still amazes me seeing it in person when he's able to shoot like that and just just get off a shot. His release off the dribble is just the quickest release off the dribble probably ever uh, on any sort of jump shot. And it's just, oh my goodness, it, it's crazy when he's able to make shots like that. I know this is nothing revolutionary that I'm saying. Uh, and then, but, but them you, losing you play was tough it, too. Like, I, you know, I've covered Steph his entire career, and it, I still have those moments where it's like, I, I can't believe somebody's doing it. Because when you watch enough basketball, you still appreciate how rare it is, even if it's somebody you're seeing do it more frequently. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, look, there there are similar types of things that you could say about what Westbrook is doing this year. Like right. there are there are certain things like athletically, you know, it's not those pull up shots, but athletically, there are things that he does where I'm just like, what in the world? Not tonight, but I'm just like, what in the world was that? Like, how in the world did a human being just do what he did? Um, and yeah, it carries the same thing. Yeah, I would say some of Russ's defensive rebounds are actually where I've appreciated that more and more, where he just like flies in out of nowhere and gets it, and then is also able to turn that into offense immediately. Because I think like if I ever tried to do that, first of all, I couldn't get up that high, but second of all, like landing would take it all out of me, and then like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go run down the floor and pass the ball to a guy for an open three. Like he's he's absolutely incredible in that, and you know as as somebody who has followed Russ for a long time. It is in some ways strange to see the player who won Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year his sophomore year of college have a game like this, but there's also this idea, which I firmly ascribe to, that players with heavy offensive burdens, and in his case also defensive rebounding burdens, have those kind of performances a little bit more frequently because you can't do everything all the time. Right, and and look, his defense is, is never going to be all defense quality. What's interesting about Westbrook in general, and tonight he was just, it was a down defensive game. What's interesting about his defense in general um, is that he's not one of those guys who is, is physically incapable of playing defense. Like he's, he's good defensively on certain possessions. And you find when he has the fall off, it's usually once he misrotates, like once he misrotates once, the effort to recover is just never really quite there. Um, it, he, he usually plays pretty hard until he makes the mistake rotating off the ball. He usually plays pretty hard until he runs into the screen. And then once he runs right into it, he's just like, okay, well, that's, that's all I can really give right now. And, and that's kind of where it comes. But if he gets over or under the screen, he continues to play hard. If he makes that rotation promptly and in the right place, and going to the right guy, he usually continues to play hard. It's it's when when the mistake comes, when he gets hung up on the pick, like that's when it usually falls off. What I thought was the a pivotal moment. You can't say it was the deciding moment in a game like this, but the uh, a pivotal moment in this game was eight forty four remaining in the second quarter. Both Westbrook and Curry sat out at the beginning of the quarter, as both of them do, and Westbrook came in first. And so there was going to be, because Curry usually comes in around the six-minute mark, depending, He there was going to be about a three- to four-minute stretch where Westbrook was on the floor and Curry was not. And actually, Draymond Green was not on the floor for a lot of this, too. And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, Oklahoma City's down four. This is their chance. And then during that time, if we're going to count the Matt Barnes free throws that happened basically at the same time as Curry came back in, the Warriors had, a, I think it was a 13-4 to run during that time, which really did functionally ice the game. 
Yeah, no, that was that was the time for them. And something that was working for them in the first quarter, really, you know, you talk about Westbrook's defensive rebounding and how important that is, and that's just for pace reasons. He gets those rebounds, and, and you don't need the outlet pass, and he, he's so quick. You know, he's like the anti-Carmelo Anthony and bringing the ball up the court. He's so quick bringing the ball up the court and saying he was doing such a good job in the first quarter. He got, I think, five rebounds in the first quarter, and, and he was pushing pace off of those five defensive rebounds really well. And I thought that was that really helped him. Didn't quite happen as much in the second quarter, not just not getting the rebounds, but they weren't really getting out playing with that same kind of offensive pace after getting defensive stops, after getting uh, defensive rebounds. And I think that's kind of what, what ended up doing them in when the Warriors went on that crazy run. They got scored by 17 in the second quarter. It was really over by then. I feel like we have to talk about the the little brouhaha at the end of the second quarter. I, it was a brouhaha. I thought it was more of a kerfuffle. Yeah, it could have gotten there. I'll, I'll defer to you, as, especially as the person who was there in person, to ascertain that. And do you, could you tell, or was there anything in the locker rooms that gave you an indication of what precipitated it? I mean, they. It seemed like Curry and Westbrook. Uh, they they all said the same thing. They all just kind of said. There was a little bit of shoving and then just fighting for positioning. And then Samaje and Curry pushed they pushed each other. And then Russ jumped in because he saw Curry pushing Samaje. And, and then Draymond jumped in because he saw Russell get in. And, and Curry called it much ado about nothing. Uh, I don't buy that. This is it, – it's gotten so, like, stupidly personal at this point. Like, this happens every time. I, first of all, I think there was a moment about a minute, like a game minute. Before the um, before that jump ball, when Oladipo and Curry were walking by each other in a dead ball under the basket, and Curry like walked right into Oladipo, uh, and they both like simultaneously gave each other like a little chest shoulder nudge, and I kind of tucked it away, and I was like, okay, like something's going to happen because that's not like a thing. That's always something that leads to something, and and I think the Thunder are to a degree in this kind of uh, overcompensatory state now following the Zaza thing where where even internally there was criticism about nobody reacting to Zaza and knocking Russ on his butt uh, in in the second time that they played. And then last time they played, it was, you know, Durant and Durant and uh, and Andre Robertson going, you know, forehead to forehead. And this time it's it's kind of this this scuffle. And they don't they, there hasn't been a situation like this with any other team. And now they've got multiple with the Warriors. Um, it's obviously not a coincidence, but they say it's much ado about nothing. So I don't believe it. <laughs> it, it might not be uh, the craziest story in the history of the NBA, but it's it's something because it keeps happening every time they play. What I find so fun about it is that both these teams, in many ways, had so much turnover. And you would think that the turnover guys would be a small part of this, but Zaza Pachulia was a huge part in, I think that was the second game of the of the but, four. But with Zaza, don't forget, Zaza specifically has a history with the Thunder, too. Because Zaza, Zaza and Steven Adams would get after it during the first round of the playoffs last year when he was in Dallas. So right. there was like, there was, but, there was personal Zaza Thunder stuff there also. But I, there isn't Oladipo Warrior stuff. I don't think there's Curry Oladipo no. stuff either. And then Taj no. had that great quote after the game about, you know, like the idea of hatred. And like, it's so weird because, yeah, I mean, there there was this intense series last year that, you know, was an amazing Western Conference finals that went seven games. But half of the guys who played in that in that series, either A, weren't in this game or B, are not either of these teams anymore. Yeah, you know, you follow the you follow the guy at the top, right? It normally trickles down. And uh, 
when when Russ is upset with the team, which obviously he is, he doesn't like to admit it, but it's clear that he is, and, and it's okay. It's okay that he is. The reason why I think this whole thing is weird and uh, and and like weirdly personal and uncomfortable is because nobody just wants to talk about it. Like one thing that I respect about Draymond is he'll just say stuff. Like when when the uh, bewildered and furious thing uh, you know came out, everyone's you know hypothesizing on on who who you know who said that to Chris Haynes, who released that stuff, and and somebody said to me, could he was probably Draymond. Man, Draymond would have just said that, man. He would have just said that and not even thought twice about it. Um, so I respect that like a guy like Draymond will just come out and say stuff. And uh, the fact that it just seems so passive aggressive is it's all just it's all just weird to me. It's just it's it's honestly it's not fun to cover for me anymore. I, I don't really enjoy it. I don't really want to cover a Thunder Warriors playoff series if that ends up happening. I think it would be more fun to just concentrate on the actual basketball of another series. I agree with you. The personal drama would be entertaining a little bit, but it would it would wane quickly, and that's all it would really be. I mean, there, the Thunder would play better, of course, than they did tonight in a series, and presumably Durant would be back by that point. But... There isn't as much there. And another maybe part of this is, I mean, Russell's phenomenal talent and has, you know, has a lot of pride in himself and the work that he does. And you see this around the league a little bit that while Curry has been phenomenal the last two years, the amount of praise, especially as a small guy that he has gotten, I think that does great a little bit on all of the other elite point guards in the league because they justifiably believe that there is not much of a difference between them. You know, not in terms of style, but in terms of overall quality. And I'm sure, to draw in a different example, I'm sure Chris Paul doesn't love this. Chris Paul never won an MVP. Chris Paul, you know, he has lots of commercials and, you know, he has all that. But Curry has this aura, not only in terms of, you know, just kind of the the vague national stuff, but also... If you're watch like these guys watch a lot of basketball, they watch Sports Center, all that sort of stuff, to see this player elevated over them if they feel that it's either not deserved or lightly deserved, I'm sure that must be hard too. It's um it's personality too. I mean it's person Stephen Curry has a marketable personality. Because what we're talking about right now is marketing, right? We're not talking about quality of basketball player. Because Chris Paul is, in my opinion, the best point guard of his generation. Uh, and and just one of the best point guards we've ever seen in any, any, any lifetime. Uh, he is absolutely incredible. But and Chris Paul is in the commercials. And but Chris Paul's on court game, his feistiness, his his dirty plays, like that doesn't relate to people as well as Curry. Curry is basically you know as a New Yorker and a Yankee fan. And I know you'll love this one, but Curry is basically the Derek Jeter of the NBA now. Like he is to the NBA what Derek Jeter was to baseball for twenty years. I just threw up in my mouth. But he is, man. That's what I he under- is. I understand what you're getting they have, at. I they, have totally the same, they have the same personality. They're on the marquee franchise. They're winning. They're about, you know, the, the whole thing is that they're they're winning titles. And I guess Curry's only got one, but he'll have more. And, like, they have that same, like, marketable personality. And they're just, like, these, these good-looking family men. And, like, Curry's got, you know, you know his, his dad in the mix, too, and his brother. And now he's got his... His his wonderful wife and wonderful kid and and you know Jeter's like family was at every game and like they were just they're both so incredibly marketable on this team that's so incredibly marketable uh, that happens to be winning titles and and it just it just is the perfect storm of marketability. 
And and that's the way this stuff kind of works sometimes. He's also very accessible as an athlete because this is something I've talked about with LeBron a lot is that LeBron people can't connect with him because there aren't individuals who are six foot nine built like a tank and still the fastest guy in the league. Like LeBron, nobody knows a LeBron James. Nobody is a LeBron James. There's just him. Whereas Curry, you know, even though when you stand next to him, you know, a six foot three guy, he is a little bit slight of build for an NBA player, but not for like, you know, a normal person. Like to see that a person who looks more normal, at least compared to his surroundings, do what he does and shoot threes, which a lot of people do and pick up and everything else like that. His game is also easier to connect with, even though he is the greatest shooter of all time. Right. I, I, I think that's kind of a weird thing, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's obviously true. It's obviously, look, I don't look at Stephen Curry and think I can do that, but I, I look at like, uh, like Glenn Davis in 2015 and think maybe I can do that. But I don't look at Stephen Curry and think I can do that. Uh, but it's that's obviously true because it's true for for tons of people. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about all the big men in the league that were harder to market. I mean, Wilt was this way to a point. Even, you know, like even later on, I mean, Shaq's a little different, but that's because Shaq has this effusive personality. But it can be hard to market those guys. And I'm going to be very interested to see how the league and how those, the, you know, this young crop that you and I both really like a lot, how it works out for them, because it's harder to identify with Kareem. It's harder to identify with, with Wilt or, you know, those types of guys, because they're so special and they're, they're huge. They're mountains of individuals and it's a different world. Right. Big guys shoes never sell like guards shoes just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's it's part of why uh, Kevin Durant says he's six nine and not six eleven, right? Even though he yep. is six eleven, it's part he of is. why he's lifted at six nine. It's because he 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 wants to be. He does not want people to think of him as a big. And I think it's a little bit different in today's age because I think to some degree, maybe maybe and maybe I'm wrong. Like Nick DePaula would have a significantly smarter opinion on this than I would. Uh, but like I think to some degree, people identify with the skill of it. Uh, and like, like I bet you Giannis is going to sell shoes. I bet, I bet you that's. I would not be shocked at all. And he's six eleven. Like that's going to happen. But like when Durant comes into the league in two thousand seven, and six eleven, like you're probably a big, uh, or at least you're you're an unrelatable guy. And six nine is the height for small forwards, and that's why he's you know lying about it. And, and Chris Herring wrote a great piece where he talked to Durant about this for the Wall Street Journal about a year and a half ago. It was really really good and. Uh, it's just it's interesting the way that that marketing ends up ends up bearing out because uh, and it'll be interesting to see like you said with the young guys and with this new style of NBA if skill can override size in this kind of stuff. Yeah, it it will be interesting. I mean, because you can think about I mean, in some ways the way I I I've gotten into this argument before and I won't go through the whole thing now, but in many ways, Magic being listed as a point guard is kind of a, a weird issue of billing because he fits it on the offensive role but didn't defensively. But he was accessible not only because of the way he played, but also because of his personality. And like I, I would be interested. I've never seen Magic stand next to some of the guys of this generation just to see to see physically, because I think with him, he got the point guard label so quickly that it it wasn't an issue. And maybe that's part of the reason why Harden wants it. And a few other guys do, because they know that there are benefits that come from it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Although I still don't consider Harden really a point guard. I keep going back and forth. Sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. But like, I think when I get down to it, I kind of don't because he's not guarding point guards. 
and, so I struggled and to do it. That's where I that's where I draw the line for me. To me, all of the other positions we define defensively, but for whatever reason, and I think it's because of guys like Magic, we think of the point guard as the guy who orchestrates the offense. And either either the offensive role needs a new name or the defensive role needs a new name. That's why I use primary ball handler a lot is because that's the differentiator that I make. So the point guard is the guy who guards point guards and the primary ball handler is the dude who runs the offense. But I understand that I am the anomaly and that's fine. But, yeah, well, that's why like people people are like, Giannis is playing point guard now. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's playing power forward. They have him on the back line of their defense. He is a rim protector for them. Right, and that's, and that's why the term that's really, why the term point forward exists. You know, like you, you could argue it probably originated with Rick Barry, but you know, like that the reason that existed was to try to explain that role, and it kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. Yeah, no, look, it's great. If, it's honestly better. I'd rather have a dude who can if if you can have a guy who can protect the rim and who can run your offense. How many people in the NBA can do that? Like you can count them on one hand. Almost no one can do that. Like it's not. It's not slight to say he's not a point guard, but he just that's he just doesn't. He doesn't play point guard. It's fine. He plays point forward. He is a point forward, and he is he's incredible, and he's going to be amazing. But people, for some reason, when I say he's not a point guard, someone says he's a point guard. I'm like, well, he's not a point guard. People get uh, or I just come out and I just refer to him as a power forward. People get like people act like I'm like slighting Giannis. But that's not the position he plays. It's just not what he plays. No, and, and from a team building perspective, it that's actually where it matters more than in terms of discussion. Because if you think of Giannis as your point guard, or this is going to come up with Ben Simmons, if you want him guarding the other team's point guard, you think about your team very differently. But if you do like what the Rockets have with James Harden, what the Bucks have with Giannis, and you have somebody point guard size who plays a lot off ball, there are a lot more of those guys who could be in the league and do well than are because they're because they can't do the typical job of a point guard. And so it actually allows a team to build in a very, very different way. And the, the ones that have acknowledged that, Malcolm Brogdon's having a wonderful year. I think Kyrie has benefited from that massively playing next to LeBron. Like Kyrie is a wonderful player, but he's not awesome at creating shots for other guys. And so he doesn't have to do that very much because he plays with LeBron James. It's nice when you play with LeBron James, moral of the story. It really is. And yeah, I'm happy in some ways that he got to be on on different teams. And we're seeing that actually, it's a weird thing with a lot of the guys of this kind of generation, because you get to see them in dramatically different circumstances. And I think I'm I'm appreciating Durant differently this year, because I've seen him with different teammates. You can even have that like with Russ with a lot of turnover. But it is different, you know, so I appreciated LeBron more even after he went back to Cleveland, because I saw him play with Bosh and Wade and everybody else. Right. Yeah. I get that. I get that. You can you can seeing a guy in a different context can uh, can color him differently. There's no question about that. I mean, like Team you USA said, did Russell, that for Mello. Yes, like, for sure. And 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 like I, Russell is is the ult- Russell this year. It's like the ultimate example of that, right? Yeah, and he didn't. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's any better than he's ever been the last few years. Like, I don't think he's better this year than he was last year. It's just that he's allowed to do... Royce wrote an article on this this morning. Like, he's just able to do so much more. He, he's got the freedom to do basically whatever he wants now. And uh, that's that's presented him the opportunity to put up these crazy, crazy, crazy numbers. Yeah, and, and it's also important to... Uh, I mean, we don't need to have a full MVP discussion, but to appreciate... Give me, give me, give me your MVP ballot. I want to hear it. Okay, so... My number one is Westbrook on the logic. So I'll explain to people my criteria. I have a pretty basic one, compared, at least compared to a lot of people, which is if you took that player 
off that team and replaced him with a league average person who fills that role. So like with James Harden, you'd probably need somebody who can run an offense. It's going to be different than Harden, but close enough. You get the idea. If you replace that person with them, how much, how much worse would that team be? And my argument for putting Russell Westbrook one, which I still do, and you know, it's I, I, it's not like it's a slam dunk. It's very, very close to me, is because I think that the Thunder would have a greater difference. And at moments in time, I've thought that's a little bit unfair because wins at the higher rungs are actually more valuable. You know, they better see in the playoffs, home court, things like that. But if you're making that argument, then you're basically saying that having better teammates should help you in the MVP race, and I think that's garbage. So I, I, I think that that's the basic way to put it. So my ballot would be one, one Russ, two Harden. Same basic logic for both of them. It's just that it's a little bit more powerful for, for Westbrook. Three is Kawhi, partially because he's played more and partially because he does so much defensively. And while LeBron could do that, he doesn't. And then four is LeBron. He's massive in, in all those same ways, but he's played a little less. And, I, I'm, and I'm fine with a lot of different orders for those four. And then fifth, I don't really care right now. They're they're like ten different guys that I'd consider. Well, not ten. They're like four. And I don't know. I, I think I think last time somebody asked me, I said Isaiah Thomas, but I could go. I could honestly go with four or five guys. Yeah, there's so many guys in contention. I mean, like John Wall is having such a great year. I can uh, I'd consider Chris Paul too. I, I I don't think I'd give it to him because he missed so much time. Tough with minutes. How how many games has he played? I'm looking this up. The, I think he's in the fifties now. He's, yeah, he's missed, I think it is. He's uh he's played forty nine games. He played his fiftieth game tonight, so he he's gonna play like sixty, low sixties. So like for so that's actually a good example. So like I don't consider missed time nearly as much for all NBA as I do for most valuable player because the amount of time you are on the court is value. Like that to me, that is an important part of it. You know, if a guy plays forty four minutes a game at an awesome level, that's more valuable than doing it in thirty four. But fortunately now the league isn't doing that as much anymore. So the, the, the margins there are closer. Right. No, I feel that way about uh, like Tony Allen. Like Tony Allen, I think it was what, 2014, right? A lot of people were saying like, how did he not make all defense? But like he played 55 games or something like that. And the last few years, Tony Allen's only played like 60 games. And uh, Tony Allen is on a, on a per minute basis, Tony Allen is one of the four best defensive guards in the NBA. And he, I actually think he still probably is. Uh, but Because he, he's having a really, really good defensive year. But but if Tony Allen plays 63 games, I would just find it difficult to give it to him over somebody who's played maybe slightly worse and has played 82 games. Yeah, it's, ch- it's challenging in that way. Like, I had that. I wrote a piece, for those of you who want to dig it up, I wrote a piece for Warriors World back in 2015 about my personal quandary about the arguments for Andrew Bogut and Draymond Green for Defensive Player of the Year, because I felt that Bogut was a superior defender overall at that point, but he played so much less time than Draymond. And so I'm like, if it's most valuable defender, then it's Draymond. If it's most outstanding, I think it's Bogut. And then I went, thank God I don't have a vote, is basically the way that I wasn't a hedge. I was legitimately unsure. And then Kawhi won, which I had no opposition to. But it, it's very interesting how, like, I, I talk about this sometimes, I guess it's the lawyer in me, that the wording that is used is very important like, in my eyes. And that's also why I believe that the league should give out a most valuable and a most outstanding award. And they could, the, all the same people would be eligible, but it would f- force people to realize that value is a very interesting construct. And to have that be the only way to determine the definitive player of a season is a little bit strange. Yeah, I wonder who it's going to be. 
I, 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 you know what I think is the toughest part of choosing an MVP this year? Because it's so close, I feel like. And, and those top four guys are all having such good years. I, this, to me, feels like the first year of what will end up being like the steroid era equivalent of the NBA. Not that everyone is doping, that like offensive numbers, individual offensive numbers because of you know, a new analytic style and be, you know, guys shooting threes and because a lot of teams are just placing a larger burden on individual players. And because honestly, I talk to a lot of people around the league, like really smart people, like people who I go to for really smart basketball opinions and who consistently lead me on the way to really smart basketball opinions, who I know Barkley, like people mock Barkley for saying that the quality of the NBA is down right now. The quality of the team's quality of the players is down. I've had many people who work in the league, who are really smart, tell me that. Um, and they think that's a, a reason why, uh, you know, guys like Westbrook and Harden and LeBron are, and Kawhi are just putting up these numbers that we haven't quite seen from players like them really ever in the modern era. Um, and it's tough to evaluate because we don't really have a context for these numbers, you know? Like, it's hard to frame James Harden's or Russell Westbrook's numbers when we haven't seen anyone do this in our entire lifetimes. I, that's a really interesting point, and there are kind of two different analogies I want to make. One is the same thing's going on with salaries right now. You know, the idea that salaries are totally. – that there isn't really a calibrator. I actually did that last summer. I wrote – I did contract conversions for a lot of guys to basically say, hey, this is what it was in like 2013 money because it just helped people realize, okay, here's here's where this is going. But the second part – I, I think that this get, I, it's different than skill, and I understand why they're being conflated. And I think you can make an argument that that's actually a proper way of putting it. But the league is going in a direction now, and this is very interesting in light of these two teams, where different elements of basketball skill are being rewarded and different elements of basketball skill are being disincentivized. So being a good passer is a little, I would say it's a little bit more valuable than it was before. Being a good shooter is substantially more valuable and being a bad shooter is substantially worse. And so what's happening is the way that that selection process works out, you get a little bit less defensive talent on the floor, but that will probably eventually lead to switching and a different style of coaching. But the talent changed before the schemes changed. And that is, I think, a big part of what is leading to it. And also just the idea that I think back to you, it's great that you brought up Tony Allen, because I think one of the elements that crystallized this for a lot of front offices was the Warriors-Grizzlies series in 2015, when the Warriors decided to put Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen because he can't shoot, and the Warriors ran the Grizzlies off the floor for three games. Like, it was a, it was a sea change to see a team do that so callously and have it work so well that now it's a lot harder to make that. And you think about how Robertson had to do basically everything on the floor last year in the Western Conference Finals to stay out there. It's so hard now. The ecosystem is so much more challenging and threatening for those types of players, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's why the evolution of Andre Robertson is going to be interesting. His free agency is going to be interesting. Oh, can uh, we take can well, we take a quick second to talk about those two free throws? Because holy crap, was that terrible! <laughs> I felt bad for him. Like I don't feel bad for professional athletes very often because they you know they get to do something that I think is all of our dream jobs. But oh my god, I I just I cringed. I felt bad. I I like him a lot. That was just that was just rough. He is not a good free throw shooter. I feel confident saying that. 
he is a wonderful basketball player, and I would I would love to have him. I would love to have clones of him on just about every NBA team. But yeah, <laughs> he just can't shoot. He's never going to shoot. It's just it's never going to happen. It's too far off. Um, he's not. Uh, there was a point where I was like, he. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if he gets an incredible shooting coach and it just clicks, like maybe he can be Matt Barnes better defensively. Uh, maybe, but like that's the absolute ceiling for him um, in terms of being an offensive player. That's like everything goes right. Maybe he's Matt Barnes, but I don't. I don't think he's. I don't even know if he's going to be Tabo Cephalosha from a shooting standpoint. Yeah, I mean Tabo. It, it you could use a sundial to to get his wind up, but the shot went in, and that's. In many ways, that's more important. I mean, there's there's all this information about you know be the willingness to take shots and then theoretically to make them over a certain threshold, whatever that is, is important. And Robertson will have that challenge, and we're seeing this a little bit with MKG in Charlotte, another guy I like quite a bit. Where you have to be so good to be a wing and be your team's worst offensive player, like that. It's possible, but it's so hard to make that work. Yeah. No, that's true. And uh, honestly, there there are times where it doesn't quite work. Uh, when yeah. it's certain teams like Golden State in the playoffs last year, I mean, it was it was it was working well for a little bit, uh, and then those last three games, it, it kind of hurt them when they really just were not guarding Robertson whatsoever. Um, oh, can I, can I quickly tell my pet theory? I, I wrote about this for the Athletic, but I realized I should put it on the show. Of so. I think one of the things that happened and made these games less competitive this year, beyond the obvious of the personnel changes, is that the Warriors, through not only the playoff series, but through the battles these teams had in the regular season before that, got very comfortable at defending and attacking everybody but Kevin Durant on the on the Thunder. Like that, That's just something that you work through. You think about, okay, what are we going to do against this guy? What are we going to do against that guy? You get scouting. And what happened was, when the Thunder lost Kevin Durant, they replaced him, you know, as best they could. I thought Presti did a very good job, especially with the Oladipo trade. And the problem, though, was that they just had to give a higher proportion of their minutes to those guys, and the Warriors just, like, were already in their comfort zone. They already knew what to do. And so it just kind of all fed together and led to this 4-0 season sweep. That's an interesting theory. I'll buy it. I'll let you have that one. That's interesting. You think Andre Robertson before? I have one question for you before we finish. Of course. Do you think, do you think Robertson makes first team all defense? Do you think he should make first team all defense? Okay. N- well, I think it's still positions, right? All defense is still so he's going to be listed as a forward. So that means he has to beat Kawhi. Uh, well, or, you can, you can. Uh, he could be a guard. If the writers cheat and put him as a guard, I think he would deserve it. But he doesn't deserve right. it forward over over Draymond or over Kawhi. I mean, those guys just. I do. agree with you on that. I see. I but think he might him, be. But he might be third. He might be the third best defensive forward in the league right now. I think of him as a guard because he starts at small forward, but he guards ones and twos. And I think if you were if you're talking about like putting him on All NBA, which obviously you're not, but just for the sake of this argument, if you're talking about that, you would probably put him on as a forward because he plays small forward. But All Defense, you should probably put him on who he guards the most, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Proposal to any NBA executive that are listening. It's at least justifiable for putting him on as this guard, right? Sure. Proposal to NBA NBA executives that are listening to this podcast. Please make the all-defensive team one center, one forward, one guard, and then two wild cards because it's so much more fair. There's no reason that there have to be two guards on an all-defensive team. Yeah. Just, just, yeah, that that would be fine. I don't really care how they do it, to be honest. There's five guys. I, I... 
the only reason I care I is that so. it, I, I I get what you're saying. I, it doesn't bother I me as much either way. It doesn't matter as much with Robertson, but if it affects contract incentives and it affects you know theoretically eligibility for for money in that sort of way, you know, like for a future contract, then it does matter a little bit to me because I want it to be fair because I want those guys to get their compensation. That's true. That's a good point. And there have also been scenarios like multiple in recent years where defensive player of the year was second team all defense. Mm-hmm. Who was that? Gasol when he won the second team. Gasol did defense? it, and I think and that was Chandler. It. I think it was that Tyson Chandler. Right. The year he won with the Knicks. I think he was second team all defense. I think yeah. he was second team all defense. Yeah, which it's, is so it's super weird. It is so weird. He was first team all defense the following year when he did not win defensive player of the year. But he was second team all defense when he won defensive player. And the and the reason why is because it's not the same. The voters is not the exact same overlap. Right, and it's the and the idea of just the, the voting format is also really different. So you know, it, it could be it could even be that sort of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Would you put Gobert first team center? Oh, absolutely. Go go to me. The 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 decision for the award itself. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but from my eye test and what I know from before, the top two for defensive player of the year are Gobert and and Green in either order, and then so that means that they're both first team at their spots. Speaking of Green. Did you know Danny Green has never made all defense? It's ludicrous. Isn't that crazy? Well, do you know that Tim Duncan never won Defensive Player of the Year? Yeah, that that's crazy. <laughs> that's insane. But it's he's retired. I've 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 discussed Tim Duncan never winning Defensive Player of the Year on this podcast before. Danny Danny Green not making all defense in his entire career so far is crazy. Yeah, he definitely deserves it. I mean, he deserved it last year. Like that that Spurs team was unbelievable. And they're, they're, I think he, I think he deserves it this year. He does too. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd have to think about whether it's first or second team, but he's one of the four best defensive guards in the league. Sure. I, I, I don't, I don't know if I have a vote, but I, I'll throw him on there. I'll throw him on there. If he's, a, he's if great. you have a vote, I'll lobby, I'll lobby you for it. He, well, you don't have to. I'll put him on there. He, he's fantastic. He's the best transition defender in the NBA. Which is he's, insane considering he's, he's like six five six six. Like you wouldn't. No, necessarily... but he really is. Oh, absolutely. He really is the best. He is incredible at picking up ball handlers. He is incredible at blocking shots in transition. He's incredible at altering shots in transition. Um, just just picking up the right guys, you know. And, and he's adapted. Like he was incredible at this four years ago, and now in in an age where so many guys like spread to the three point line in transition, he's so great at picking up three point shooters off the ball, picking up ball handlers coming down. Just like every kind of transition defense that there can be, he is fantastic at. And he is he's great, man. He's such a such an underrated player and on on one of the best contracts in the NBA. Plus he's so he's so committed to transition defense that he does it on his own team's transition offense. So gotta give him credit for that as well. Well wait, what do you mean? He's a really bad transition offensive player for oh. the Spurs. <laughs> he shoots a lot of bad threes in transition. He does. But I love him. I mean, he's he's an incredible player. And I got a like a three minute smile pop answer about Danny Green like four years ago. That's still one of the highlights of my media life. <laughs> I think that's a good a good place to end it. Absolutely. Anything to uh, plug or anything before we go? Uh, you know, I have my normal stuff for the athletic. Uh, wrote a piece already, and then I will do. I do locked up locked on Warriors every day, basically, and then 
Dunked On Basketball podcast is Nate Duncan and I talking about the entire league. Those episodes are usually, it's five days a week, but this week it's a little bit shorter because he's actually traveling. But you can listen to that. We go through everybody, and then we do a 15 and 60 every week. That hits every team in a given conference. So we we'll talk, we talk about the Thunder all the time. All right, and I'm on every weekday, Monday through Friday. iTunes to subscribe to Locked on Thunder. Questions, comments, email LockedOnThunder at gmail.com and find me on Twitter at Fred Katz, F-R-E-D-K-A-T-Z. And you can check out my Thunder coverage on normantranscript.com. Uh, Thunder Road, that's my blog there. Under the sports tab on the site, you can see everything. That'll do for today. Uh, I am back tomorrow. Uh, I guess I'm previewing the game against the Sixers. Danny, you're on with Locked On, Locked on Warriors tomorrow too, right? Yeah, we have a game against the Mavericks. Oh, I just used oh, we with right. the Warriors. That's I should right. never do that. Oh, man. That is embarrassing. Ugh. That's awful. That's how you know it's late and you're tired. That's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let's end it. Until tomorrow, Locked on Thunder is locking up. the high fashion hotline hi my family's going to a tailgate and i want our style to stand out from the crowd just go to old navy old navy yep old navy's got all the latest fall styles plus during old navy's colossal sale you'll save up to 50 percent off store-wide did you say up to 50 percent off i did so don't sit on the sidelines old navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks stylish dresses from 15 bucks and comfy tees for the family from just six bucks right now at old navy and old navy.com we're cheering for old navy high fashion old navy valid 10 2 to 10 10 select styles only